day five, our last day of looking at the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. We've been walking through this week how God works in our lives in the midst of the real struggles that we have and how he'll help us to survive. He'll give us hope no matter what. As we look at these last few verses, beginning in verse 21 and down through verse 24, we're going to read together about God's promise of security, of confidence in our lives. That's in verses 21 and 22. But before we get to those verses, I want to skip ahead a couple of verses first and read verses 23 and 24, because they remind us of the autobiography, the battle, the history of what Paul and the Corinthians were going through. Listen to these verses. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith that you stand firm. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about why we stand firm by our faith. But here, Paul talks about, it was to spare you that I didn't return to see you. Remember yesterday, we talked about the fact that that was misunderstood. They thought Paul didn't come because he's a liar, because he doesn't care about us. And Paul says that wasn't it at all. I was misunderstood, he says. To understand what was going on here, you have to sort of understand the history of Paul and the Corinthians and the battle that they'd gotten into. We talked the first day of this week about the fact that Paul began the church of Corinth, at Corinth. This is a very brief look at this history. Paul begins this church and then he leaves and problems begin shortly after Paul leaves. Remember, the city of Corinth dealt with sin. There's a lot of sinful behavior in Corinth and it made its way into the church. The church is going to struggle with whatever the culture is struggling with because it's what the people in the culture are struggling with. So the people began to return to the immorality of their past, the jealousies and the sexual immorality. And so 1 Corinthians was written to give advice to a divided church, a struggling church, a church that was struggling with sin. What happens? They get 1 Corinthians, they read it, what happens? Instead of following Paul's advice, the church follows what Paul calls, in a joking way, so-called super apostles, some false teachers who came in and said, hey, we got a better message than Paul. They taught a different gospel. They built on the Corinthians' pride and sinful nature. They built on things that would never last. And so Paul revisited Corinth, and he was, in essence, laughed out of town. He was rejected by the very church that he'd started. And then Paul sends by Titus a very severe letter to the Corinthians. Not 2 Corinthians yet. We know that Paul wrote, because of what he says in 2 Corinthians, another letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And he might, might have written two or three, we don't know. But he sends a very severe letter. You can read about that in chapter 7, verses 5 to 13. And after sending Titus with this letter, Paul could not wait to find out what their response was. He loves them. And he's just said some very harsh things to them. So he sets out to meet Titus and he finds him in Macedonia and they meet and he finds out that all is well. And out of that, Paul writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, inspired by God's spirit, as 1 Corinthians was. The letter in the middle, not so inspired by God's spirit. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are. He writes this letter and it has more of a tone of reconciliation. God's helped us to survive this. Paul writes 2 Corinthians in probably the autumn of, of 56, at least the third actual letter in response to this good news that he got from Titus. But they still had some questions, some struggles, and Paul's going over it again, reminding them one more time, I didn't come, not because I was rejecting you, not because I didn't love you, but I wanted to spare you. And then he reminds them in verse 24, remember that it's God who loves us, who causes us by faith to stand firm. He says, I don't lord it over your faith. He's, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord, Paul is saying. 
What I'm talking about is what he wants to do for you, not what I can do for you. Now, back to verses 21 and 22, because this is what God does for us. How do I stand firm by faith? Because what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. When you turn to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I trust you. I want you to come into my life. Some people feel a lot of emotion in that moment. Other people don't feel much emotion at all. But the truth is, he keeps his promise. He's standing at the door and knocking. If I open the door, he will come in. He comes in if I invite him in by saying, I repent of my sins. I want to turn to you, Jesus. I want to live the way you want me to live. He comes into my life. And when he does that, whether you have feelings or not, you're a changed person. Immediately, there's a spiritual transaction that takes place. Now, what happens? Well, there's much that happens, but Paul focuses in on a few of those things, three of them particularly in verses 21 and 22 when he says this. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. How do we stand firm in Jesus? Because of what Jesus has done. Not by what we've done, but by what he has done. Because Jesus died on the cross. He opened the door so that when I say to Jesus Christ, I want you to come into my life, these three things immediately happen. He anoints you, he sets his seal of ownership on you, and he puts his spirit in your heart as a deposit. Now, what does that mean? First, he anoints you. Luke chapter four, verse 18, we read that Jesus was anointed. That's something we think, well, of course, he's God in human flesh. What amazes us is reading here that we are anointed. If you've read much of the Bible, you know as you read through the Old Testament, it's the priests that are anointed. It's the tabernacle of God that's anointed. But these are pictures actually of how God desires to relate to his people through Jesus Christ, relate to us as believers. And when you get to the New Testament, we find out we're all priests. We're all a temple of God's spirit. We're all anointed by God. To be anointed by God is not some special favor that God puts on a few people who are great servants. Every servant of Christ, every follower of Jesus is anointed. God has put his hand on your life. He has anointed you. To be anointed is God recognizing the holiness of God has been placed upon your heart and life to give forgiveness and direction and life and eternity. He's anointed you with that. He anointed you. He does the second thing. He sets his seal of ownership on you. On some envelopes, even today, you'll see a, a decorative wax seal on the back, some fancy envelopes. In the days that the Bible was written, that seal was not a decoration. It was more like a, a lock. If anyone opened the letter before it reached its destination, it would be obvious that the seal had been broken. And, and just like those envelopes, God's spirit has sealed you until you reach the destination of eternity with him. What does that mean? Sealing really implies two things, ownership and protection. Every person's seal had a design on it that was their mark. It was unique to them. It was like a, a notary stamp of that day. A seal on a document was a guarantee that it had not been forged. It came from that person. And God seals your life through his spirit. Nothing can be more personal or powerful than his sealing in your life. The seal of God's spirit in your life says you're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. God owns you now. You may be one of those people who feel like, I don't have much of a heritage. I don't, I don't really fit in anywhere. You're wrong. You're part of God's family. Sealing implies ownership, but also protection. That envelope seal protected the document from being opened or tampered with along its journey. And God put his seal on your life saying, Satan, stay away. Now, Satan's going to tempt you. He's going to try to tear your life apart. 
But in the end, God's seal stays on your life, stands on your life, saying you can go thus far no further. You cannot take salvation away from this one whom I have sealed. God's seal is on your life. God's anointing is on your life. And then a third thing Paul talks about here, he says he put his spirit into our hearts as a deposit, a guarantee. Now, in, in ways we talk today, that, that's essentially saying that God's spirit is God's down payment on our lives. God is saying this great promise of heaven that I have for you, I want to let you know that I'm not going to let you down on that promise. And so in order to let you know that that promise is real, I'm going to give you something now, a deposit that's guaranteeing what's to come. And what deposit does he give us? He gives us himself. He gives us his own spirit. The depth of God's commitment to us in this promise, it's almost beyond belief. A deposit is something, especially in the days the Bible was written, that's a pledge for a promise. It's earnest money guaranteeing that you'll keep your promise. And when the Bible was written, the deposit was taken so seriously that if the promise wasn't kept, the earnest money would be lost. If you put down deposit on land and you backed out of the deal, you'd lose your deposit. If you gave somebody an engagement ring as a pledge of your intention to marry, and then you broke the engagement, you'd lose the ring, you'd lose the dowry. God has guaranteed our eternal salvation with his own self. He can't lose himself. He's the one who holds everything together. He's guaranteed our salvation with something that can never be lost. So how do you stand firm in Jesus Christ? Because you may feel like, I'm pretty shaky right now in my faith. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through. It doesn't depend on you. So stop listening to the temptation of Satan to believe that it depends on you and start in a fresh new way realizing he's anointed me. He's sealed me. He's put down the deposit on my life through his spirit. I know where I'm headed. So based on that, I can begin to live. I can begin to live like a citizen of heaven. I can begin to live above these temptations. I can begin to live above this world. I can be in the world but not of the world because that's who I am. I'm anointed. I'm sealed. I've got God's spirit in my life. Our Father, we thank you that it doesn't depend on us. We thank you that as we depend on you, you bring all these things into our lives and so much more. And so, Lord, Release me, release us from the temptation this week to depend on ourselves and give us a fresh view of what it means to set our hope on you, to depend on you. We do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We won't want to miss next week. We're going to look at chapter two. In this chapter, Paul talks about how you survive personal offenses and accusations with faith and love. Mm -hmm.